for the week of December 13th, 2020. This is Star Wars TV Talk, where we dive deep into every Star Wars TV and Disney Plus streaming series, as well as all the latest news coming out of Lucasfilm. Today we are going to discuss the seventh episode of season two of The Mandalorian, chapter 15, The Believer. But before we dive into this episode, we have some news coming out of Lucasfilm. The production company held their investors meeting on December 10th, 2020, and at it announced their slate of Star Wars films and television projects. John, why don't you give us a rundown? Sure. So I've got uh, Lucasfilm's official press release pulled up here and we'll just, we'll quickly run through like all 10 or 11 projects by name and just talk about who's attached to it. And then afterwards, maybe we'll talk a little bit about the ones that are piquing our interest. So uh, right out of the gate, Rogue Squadron is going to be a live action fair directed by Patty Jenkins of Wonder Woman. The story will introduce a new generation of starfighter pilots as they earn their wings and risk their lives in a boundary pushing high speed thrill ride. So that'll be interesting. All we really have for most of these is logos. They, they played some sizzle reels during the investor meeting, but they didn't stream a lot of that. So mm-hmm. uh, at this point we have very little to go on. I think we got a little teaser where it was just her walking towards an X wing and that's about as much as they were willing to show, but still certainly, certainly looks like she's going to have an interesting take on X wing fair. After that, Taika Waititi, uh, IG 11 himself has been given a feature film to work on but at this point it is untitled all they're really saying is that it's going to have his unique comedic and just his his creative eye uh they're kind of giving him free reign that way so we don't know what that's going to be but it's going to be some sort of fresh and unexpected take on star wars and of course obi-wan which we know about uh the big news coming out of the investor call is that it's actually going to be called obi-wan kenobi that's the official name of the limited run series and Hayden Christensen is confirmed to come back and reprise his role as Darth Vader. After that, star Wars, Ahsoka, the worst kept secret in star Wars. Obviously we just got our first tease of Rosario Dawson in the role. And this is something that Dave Filoni is going to be spearheading and it's going to exist in the Filoni verse. Like it's going to be kind of part of the Mandalorian timeline. That's going to have him and Favreau in the mix. So we can expect a a similar level of quality and craftsmanship to what we're getting on Mandalorian. And after that Rangers of the new Republic, which is also set in the timeline of the Mandalorian. My guess is that this is, they they must've been listening to our podcast where we were (laughs) talking about, you know, X-wing pilots just kind of being the beat cops of, uh, the outer rim maybe that's what we're gonna get we got a cool logo it's got kind of like the the wing flares of mm-hmm. of like a pilot's crest off the side so you know they at least got the logo right uh i have no idea what to expect other than again this is john favreau and dave filoni and it again is in the timeline of the mandalorian so it sounds well they they stated it overtly they said that all these stories that are part of the mandalorian timeline are going to culminate in some sort of crossover event uh so yes we're going to get some kind of star wars avengers type of mashup at some point down the road and rangers of the new republic is going to be part of that and then they teased lando they didn't give us anything so i don't think that there's really much beyond a logo that they figured out at this point but uh they had donald glover on contract from solo and obviously that's a, a timeline and an aspect of the galaxy that's very interesting even if solo didn't kind of kickstart that uh, aspect of, of star Wars cinema, the way that they were hoping they still have all the pieces in place. So it's nice that they're going to start mining that casting and that era for some more fun adventures. Uh, We all like Donald Glover in the role. So it'll be nice to see him kind of get the spotlight there for a little bit. That's all we know about that, except uh, Justin Simeon is attached to bring that to life and Andor, which was, one of the very first spinoff series that they announced, mm-hmm. but that we hadn't heard much else from other than this was something that was going to happen. Uh, that is still happening. They're deep enough into production that they could give us a bit of a sizzle reel. Tony Gilroy is the creative lead on that. He was the one that pinched hit the reshoots for rogue one to try and rein it in and, and reformulate the last 30 minutes to kind of have the tone that they were looking for. Mm-hmm. So 
they have a lot of trust in him and he's already kind of played nice with Lucasfilm. And obviously, you know, he's got bonafide as um, sort of a spy thriller type of genre guy. Uh, so if anyone could pull off uh, spies in space, it's going to be him. Uh, and after that, the bad batch, which we already know about, uh, this is clone Wars season eight. Basically, this is going to follow the bad batch that was established at the beginning of season seven past order 66 and into the formation of the galactic empire. Uh, so we're going to see how those guys fare. Uh, hopefully their inhibitor chips failed and, uh, they're still good guys when we see them next, but, uh, that's yet to be seen. And then a couple of sort of more esoteric projects. One's called star Wars visions which is uh, Lucasfilm kind of handing over the IP to some anime uh, creatives to put a spin on some short animated Star Wars features. Mm -hmm. Uh, That is very intriguing because we know that Star Wars has a lot of its DNA wrapped up in uh, Japanese cinema. And there's a samurai aspect to it. And there's an Eastern philosophical angle to it. So there's a lot of overlap there already. And a lot of people have already dabbled with this. We've we've seen some... Uh, like fan-made Star Wars shorts that are just phenomenal anime takes on it, re-envisioning a, a few key scenes from the franchise already. So for them to take that concept and put a little bit of money behind it, uh, that I think is going to be a lot of fun. And then we get a droid story, which if I understand it correctly, it's kind of one of those choose-your-own-adventure type of ideas mm-hmm. that a lot of the streaming services have been flirting with. It's going to involve R2-D2 and C-3PO, so it's good to know that Anthony Daniels is still working. And that's about all we know on that. And then there's going to be a couple things coming out of Lucasfilm that aren't Star Wars related. Uh, we're going to get a, a Willow installment and an Indiana Jones installment. And I think, oh, other than something that's completely new to Lucasfilm, they've licensed the best-selling novel Children of Blood and Stone, which honestly I don't have any insights on, but just mm-hmm. it's worth mentioning since it's also something they've got cooking. So uh, Lucasfilm is really doubling down on Star Wars and Disney obviously sees Star Wars television IP, like prestige TV IP as being a big component of their streaming strategy. So they're just basically raining money down on, on Lucasfilm right now. And I think we're going to get some serious treats over the next few years as these things drop. Yeah. And John, you actually forgot one and that's okay because it's actually the one that I? I am most excited about. And that is the Acolyte, which is this, oh. it's described as the mystery thriller that will take audiences into a galaxy of shadow secrets and emerging dark side powers which sounds amazing of course this is leslie headland who is uh, the emmy award uh nominated creator behind russian doll and that was the one that we we got back um in the spring that they were that she was doing something with with a star wars project we didn't know what um at that point it was told that it was going to focus on a female lead i think is what the announcement was back in march or april whenever we got it but now that we know what it's dealing with i am super excited to dive into kind of this emerging dark side uh mystery thriller like that i think is gonna be uh it's gonna open you know pandora's box to every other possibility in star wars because we got you know of course uh the mandalorian opening their own doors to all this stuff and now with this if it is successful which i am hoping that it receives the same uh type of um attention as the mandalorian does it could open the door to so many cool stories that are focused on on that kind of genre Hmm. yeah so this press release didn't include the Acolyte logo, so I mm. jumped right over the the little paragraph they did include, so I apologize for that. The one thing that's worth noting, during the press conference, they did show the logo, and mm-hmm. it's the word Acolyte, and then it's got like a lightsaber slash through the middle of it that's kind of like still glowing embers. So obviously, yeah, there's there's a sense of conflict, dark side, something that's very intriguing about that logo, and it's worth mentioning that it's piggybacking on the world building that they're doing with the high Republic, like mm-hmm. novelization effort, you know how they're, they're trying to create kind of a new corner of the star Wars galaxy to tell some stories. And this is ostensibly one of the first live action projects that are going to come out of that effort. So it'll be really neat to see a, a fresh take on, um, you know, the, the star Wars galaxy at a time period that we haven't yet explored kind of reminds me of when episode one was coming out for me personally, I, I found it very intriguing to see a lot of the production artwork and, and just the other marketing material that they were leaking leading up to it because it had such a regal and polished quality to it that it, it felt like a very distinct and special time. 
uh, very different from the the bucket of bolts kind of Star Wars that we got in the original trilogy. And I just remember always being very intrigued by what's what is Lucas trying to say with everything that we got in those initial trailers. So I feel like Acolyte might give me kind of similar tingles when they start to show, you know, just what the galaxy looked like 500 years ago or whatever. Uh, so if they really are able to bring some creative vision to it, uh, I'm, I'm really excited. And the uh, genre is somewhere in the vein of a mystery thriller. So again, they're, Mm -hmm. they're letting these creative people tell different types of stories than just your coming of age action adventure, space opera type of stuff so it'll be neat to see like uh cassian see how closely they stick to the idea of a spy thriller and and this uh is it going to be like murder on the orient express in space like if if they really start to get creative with how they create fusions between genres then i think we're going to get some really really fun stories and we know that they are capable of doing this especially from disney's and because they did it for the last 10 years with uh with, of course, the Marvel series, just allowing these yeah. creators to do what they want and create films that are kind of a part of their own uh, spinoff genres within the superhero uh, right. greater genre. So this is going to be something that we as Star Wars fans have been looking forward to ever since Disney acquired this property. I mean, this is exactly the stuff that we were hoping for, that they would explore all these new areas of the galaxy and explore these different themes. And, oh boy, am I excited about it. Uh, yeah, we're not suffering from lack of Star Wars at this point, right? Like we were kind of worried that there was going to be a bit of a drought because they were pumping the brakes and we didn't know really what was going to get greenlit and whether Disney had a lot of faith in Lucasfilm or whether it was going to kind of get hamstrung. And it it's very interesting that we've been speculating all this time and the internet at large has been speculating all this time, but it turns out, no, they just are like, well, we'll just keep our heads down and, and do what we do best coming up with kind of great properties and great stories. And when the time's right, we'll let people know. And until then they can kind of squirm and wonder, but here it is. This is the drop. This is everything we can expect between now. And I think 2024, 2025, Mm -hmm. and uh, I'm quite happy with the projects that they chose to move forward with. Cause it looks like they've really run the gamut to give, a little bit of Star Wars to all different types of fans, traditionalists, people that want to see a new era, people that want to explore animation, people that want to see new genres and new takes fused in and uh, a lot of great creatives behind it. A lot of directors that we've already uh, seen them prove themselves in other IP like uh, mm-hmm. Wonder Woman. You know, that's one of the the rare highlights in the DC universe. So it's it's nice that we're kind of getting the best talent that came out of that effort as well brought into Star Wars. And I'm just I'm I'm really, really excited to see a lot of these drop over the next year or two. Yeah, and before we move on, I do want to bring up kind of the Rogue Squadron thing again because I watched that sizzle reel mm. and it made me even more intrigued than I was before because, of course, whenever you attach Patty Jenkins to the project, you, you say what they're doing, it, it's automatically intriguing because we know that this is a very capable director. But the way that uh, that Patty Jenkins was describing what sh- she was drawing inspiration from, and she was basically saying, "Yeah, I grew up as kind of this military right. kid, and I remember seeing uh, my dad's, you know, flyboys just above my head as I would play outside." And it's just like, "Oh, if we're getting kind of uh, someone from that perspective doing this, it is going." to be so amazing of course we know that george lucas is a fan of the cockpit and who knows what (laughs) she's going to be uh consulting with him about but i'm sure that we're going to get a lot of crossover stuff that he uh that he was inspired by back in the 70s yeah it's interesting one of the things that made the first star wars feel so authentic was that lucas just pulled heavily from the things that he was emotionally invested in in life uh, he loved uh, souping up old hot rods as a kid. And, you know, he had a complicated relationship with his dad. And you you see all this stuff spilling out onto the page. And it, in a way, I think it was very cathartic for him to figure out a way to to channel, you know, all of his coming of age angst into something really worthy of of how these youthful passions feel when you're young. So if Patty Jenkins can tap into her experiences as a young person and the impression that uh, her surroundings put on her being associated with the military and her dad being really, you know, could probably be 
pulled in as a main character in this. Like if she wanted to like Mm -hmm. find her creative muse to draw a prominent character, she probably has a handful of experiences of real people that she can pull that authentic language from and that authentic worldview from. So when you can really pull from something that is close to your heart, it just, it makes for a better project. And that's kind of why it is exciting the way that they framed that trailer and had her little voiceover really just set the scene of, I, I know what I'm doing. This, this project is in good hands. This speaks to me. This is totally my wheelhouse. Just buckle up. We're going to have some fun. Yeah. And with all of that being said, there's so many things to be excited about, but John, we have an episode <laughs> of the Mandalorian. Shall we dive into that? We probably should. Or we're going to run long. Well, chapter 15, The Believer, was written and directed by Rick Famuyiwa, and in it, Marshall Cara Dune uses her credentials to release former Imperial sharpshooter Migs Mayfield from confinement to assist Mando in tracking down Moff Gideon's ship, which still holds the child. John, what did you think of this episode? This one was fun. We haven't really had a misfire all season. But it was a bit more of a qualified win because there was a couple of things that I was a, a little little cringing at, um, mm-hmm. just plot contrivances that weren't quite landing for me. But there was still so much good stuff. And uh, it, it really is hard to fault these episodes because even when I have those occasional uh, wincing moments of, oh, maybe that's not the creative choice I would have made, I'm still walking away from these so satisfied. And uh, this was no different. And it was nice to see them rehabilitate Bill Burr's character because that was someone that you didn't necessarily want to see back because they didn't really do anything redeeming the first time you saw them. So to get a bit of his history and his pain and his moment to really get his closure with the Empire, that that was working great. So there was definitely some fun to be had with this one. It was really interesting how they wrote this character of Migs Mayfield because, like you said, no one necessarily cared to see him again right. other than the fact it was Bill Burr. And that mm-hmm. would, that was the most intriguing part of it. And last week when they had that kind of that sizzle at the end where it's like, Hey, we're getting him back. That's mm-hmm. really all I was interested in was like, oh, okay, we're going to get, uh, we're going to get Burr back in this, in the show. But they were extremely, um, careful with the writing if that makes sense from the very opening scene where they show him you know serving his time in this junkyard and mm-hmm. then uh, of course the marshal Cara Dune uses her credential to break him out like it was all um, interesting and it, the fact that he is a little hesitant like he doesn't really trust anyone um, He does, he's not too sure if she's going to break him out so that she can go shoot him in the back or whatever it is that he's thinking but he, he executed um, the, this version of Migs Mayfield uh, quite perfectly in my opinion yeah it was a lot of fun uh you need uh, a cynic sometimes to help your main characters either discover conflict or resolve conflict like you, you kind of sometimes need that third voice in the mix and i think that his character really served that purpose in a lot of ways like he really helped us to gain insights on where mando's at you know we saw some mm-hmm. overt obvious moments where mando had to make some tough choices but they used Mayfield to set all that up. So we had the foreshadowing to understand what are the hard choices that Mando's going to be faced with and really what do they mean? And so that, you know, that was a great use of the character. So there was a, there was a lot here that they did with him that was much more satisfying than the first outing. Yeah. Not the least of which is just that he's, he's reluctant to even go along, but at a certain point, even he has to realize, oh, you know, I'm damned if I do damned if I don't, do I want to stay here and weld old tie fighter parts, you know, for the rest of my life? Or, uh, am I going to go with Mando who probably, you know, still kind of wants me dead. Um, just fun, fun to see him kind of put in that awkward position and try and navigate those waters. There was, there was definitely, definitely some inspired moments that came from all that. And the other satisfying thing that happens right after, of course, the marshal uh, gets him out of prison is we get this shot of Boba Fett in his refurbished, repainted <laughs> right. armor. I mean, we have never seen it look this good. It It's quite impressive how like we knew what the colors were going back to Empire when we first right. see Boba Fett. Like we figured out oh, it's green, got some orange in there. Um, we knew all that, but seeing it in its full glory really adds like a different layer to it. And that, in my opinion, was also extremely satisfying to, to behold. Yeah. Cool paint job. I like that. He went with like a matte finish. Mm-hmm. It, it, it just catches the light in a different way. You know, it's not shiny like Mando's. It's a, it's like a great contrast. Yeah. We've never seen Boba look so good. He couldn't work that dent out of the helmet, but at yeah. this point, would he be Boba Fett if he didn't have a dent in his helmet? Yeah. Yeah. It was good to see. And I, I kind of like that. He didn't steal the show this week. Like we had a really fun outing with him to reestablish that character, but 
we don't want the Mandalorian to become the Boba Fett show. You know, we, we've got more important things happening in the galaxy. So I kind of like that he served a purpose and he had a couple of worthwhile moments, or at least we got some time in the slave one. Like we got some like Boba Fett fan service, but it didn't overshadow the, the show at large. We still felt like we're moving in the same direction that we want to be moving with Din Djarin. Mm-hmm. And then another extremely satisfying thing, in my opinion, is seeing the inside of the slave one, like the yes. passenger area kind of mm-hmm. rotate as the ship's rotating, because yeah. that was always something that's like, well, man, that would kind of stink whenever you're landing and taking off. If you're kind of somewhere else in the ship than in the right. actual cockpit. So seeing that was just one of those little details that, of course, Filoni and Fabro, they pay so much like they put so much thinking into adding in little details like that, that it's just like. You know, it's just satisfying. There's no other way to describe it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was very cool. And it's subtle. They don't dwell on it, right? Like it's not this hero shot of, mm-hmm. it, it's not like a transformer moment where they're dwelling on the technology. It's just out of the window. You can see the machinery of the slave one starting to adjust itself. And uh, yeah, I, I got a kick out of that too. Cause it's just one of those little insights that you've only ever seen from afar. So yeah, to get the internal view of slave one and how that all works. Uh, fun. A lot of fun. So anyway, the plot takes us to this mining base, apparently where it's the one of the closest places in the galaxy to track down Moff Gideon's ship. Um, that's the mm-hmm. plot that they decided to go with. Mayfield uses his experience and uh, just remembrance of his time in the Empire to uh, break them in here. But they go with a very classic uh, hero wearing the trooper attire Star mm-hmm. Wars trope, which, you know, it sets up for an interesting story within uh, Mando's progress as a character. And we'll get into that in a minute. But yeah, just them uh, putting on the suit and then they use Burr in such an important role to really call out the Mandalorian for the, this tradition of wearing the helmet. Like he makes a comment within five minutes. He probably makes a comment in each minute about Mando. Um, wearing the helmet and it's also interesting before we move on from that point in the same scene we have you know why don't they all go in and they all kind of have a record with the empire they need someone of course to be uh, you know the sniper to help with the escape and then uh, just a nice little line from Boba Fett that says let's just say they'll recognize my face (laughs) right Uh, yeah obviously we know he's a clone and the that would not be lost on the empire um so that was fun and all those excuses worked this is where we start to get into some of the conveniences of the plot that i appreciate in a way because they work thematically very well but i never like it when star wars introduces something that kind of breaks the the simplicity of the star wars universe a little bit like mm-hmm. they're getting into facial recognition kind of stuff and up to this point Star Wars has always been like any door can be opened by, you know, smacking some wires together until they spark cinematically, or you have a plucky droid that, you know, has been souped up to be able to crack any code. Like those are the ways that you break into facilities and because they intentionally stay far away from the realities of what technology can do because we live in a technological age where it's not a foreign idea to us to have something, you know, facially recognized or any other technology that could be used to secure these places because star Wars has sidestepped all that for so long. It allows you to stay invested in the story and just accept that that just isn't a thing in the star Wars galaxy. So anytime they start introducing these technologies that would make it far less plausible for people to gain access or get information. It makes it harder for you to believe the next time when they just, you know, they shoot the little box next to a door and the, the blast doors fly open conveniently. Mm-hmm. Like you can't have it both ways. You either have to be like sci-fi and technology is an obstacle or your fantasy. And even the, the fanciest space door is no different than a wooden gate on a castle. Right. So this is where I wish that they, they stuck a little bit closer to what was established in like the seventies trilogy. Cause I think that that keeps the stories cleaner, but at the same time, if you got to figure out a way to make Mando come to terms with, you know, what he's truly devoted to, uh, this is, you know, as great a setup as, as any, it just, uh, I just, I feel like it, it's going to make it harder to buy next time. They, they need to get information and face scanning is no longer a thing. <laughs> just to go off on a tangent there. <laughs> And and I'll kind of end it with with kind of agreeing with you on a lot of that. And then also kind of my issue was like, 
I figured that they were just going to use Burr's facial recognition because right. it's facial recognition he's software because right? he's in the it Empire. Would make sense. Yeah. But then the, that it's even a little more flexible than that, that anyone can have their face scanned. And I'm sure the excuse is going to be, you know, to keep it on record or whatever. But it's like if you're going to have that technology that's going to scan someone's face just for record keeping, you should also make sure that they don't they can't just access anything they want to access because right. they have a key. Um, so that was my biggest issue. Yeah. But well, that's that's exactly right, because the second you introduce a new technology like that, then our brains stop watching the show and we start thinking about how that technology works in the real world. And we start saying, mm-hmm. well, what's the point in having a facial scanner at all? If anyone can walk up to it and use it, like what are they just scanning? Mm-hmm. And then you start to say, well, wait a minute, if they're just going to scan and let anyone with a face use it, then why do they have military secrets? Like where grand Moff Gideon's star destroyer is located it would be like if the Death Star plans could be accessed by anyone at a terminal, you know, mm-hmm. in a low security um, mess hall. Like you're not supposed to dwell on the technicalities of the technology. And so when they go that route and force you to start thinking that way, then all those other pieces start to fall down like dominoes. And that's mm-hmm. that's exactly why you got to keep it ambiguous. Yeah. And now luckily the focus is, of course, uh, it shifts <laughs> very quickly when Mando takes off his helmet and we get, of course, Pedro Pascal and all of his facial glory in this episode but yeah it it does create that problem so at (laughs) least we can we can move on uh and when when we get to that scene we can kind of glance over the the plot sorry i jumped ahead there (laughs) no i mean i think it's good to get that part out of the way so we're not dwelling on it too much later yes but we get nice moments i like that they didn't they didn't get rid of burr's massachusetts accent that he still has that at many points in this episode that was just kind of fun to to see it's like yeah it's bill burr why why would you have him get rid of the massachusetts accent and introducing it into the star wars universe is is fun and all uh we know that that's the the kind of stuff that favreau uh likes to do he likes bringing in these people and to be themselves and and characters that were definitely written for that and it makes sense Right. But this whole car ride, I mean, they they spend about five <laughs> minutes in this little transport vehicle uh, before they start fighting pirates. And it's really Burr kind of going under this whole thing like, Mando, you think you're better than me, but well, you're not right. better than me. We're the same person because we'll both bend the rules when we need to. And, you know, it's one of those. It's like the classic trope where the villain's just like or, or some sort of um, antagonist is basically saying you're the same, you and I. But uh, mm-hmm. this was one that it does have the payoff and i think that we will get more payoffs in the future and it it's so tragic it makes the tragedy episode even more tragic when you think about <laughs> uh the fact that that mando is willing to do this that he is willing to take off his helmet for the child and expose right. himself to people that according to his creed uh you can't do mm-hmm. yeah no obviously all of the silliness with the face scanning it serves a purpose and I love the purpose that it serves. So rather than jump ahead again and get off track, uh, I'm just going to say I'm right there with you and I can't wait to jump into uh, thematically what that means for Mando. But we got to talk about how Bill Burr is a crap disturber, kind of like you, you were alluding to there. And he basically cuts through all of Mando's BS. He says, yeah, like here you are in a trooper outfit. And last time I saw you, you were ready to shoot me for having the audacity to try and get a peek under the helmet. So what is it? You know, is it your helmet? Is it any helmet? Is it when you want to? Uh, so there's definitely some probing questions that Bill Burr uh, challenges Mando with. And uh, it, it obviously, yes, like we said, it pays off. But uh, maybe we should talk a little bit about some uh, almost Indiana Jones style tank mm-hmm. top action here with the pirates. So why don't, why don't you set that up? Yeah, so we have, of course, them driving to the facility and uh, the, them transporting these explosives, of course, which they're mining out of this village. And it also speaks to a greater theme of Star Wars, where uh, Burr himself points out another massive flaw in the galaxy that basically, hey, these villagers, they don't care. Republic, Empire, you're, we're, we're just intruders. We've come in here and we've taken away their land. We've taken away their space. Yeah. And, and the New Republic is not absent from from uh, committing those type of crimes, which then leads up to this attack. I mean, you kind of get the theme, the way that that young child in the village is looking up at Mando through the window. You get this idea that there might be something that goes down, which gets us involved in this really uh, neat pirate on Mandalorian action where there's a lot of explosions and uh, just a lot of really cool cinematic work. And it's mm-hmm. so mind blowing when you think like 
oh yeah, I keep forgetting this is probably on an LED screen. They probably didn't go out to the jungle and film all this, which, <laughs> you know, is quite remarkable within itself. Yeah, the the fact that I spent so little time thinking about how they put the scene together and just enjoying it, it's amazing. It, it's absolutely amazing because we we've gotten so accustomed to this level of visual effects from like Marvel movies and Star Wars movies, like the the big screen fair that we're so much more accepting now of seeing it on the small screen and just accepting that, yes, they can just turn out visuals like this and you aren't wowed by it. You're just lost in it. And it's kind of important that we get to that point where every time there's a good effect on a television show, we don't stop and go, wow, how did they afford that? Like every time a a dragon would come out on game of Thrones or something, you're kind of thinking, well, was that half their season budget? But now no, we can have these kind of epic set pieces that are every bit as rich as what you would get in the silver screen fair. And we can just ingest it and, and never question it. It has such integrity and weight. And I, I, I'm absolutely floored that they can turn this stuff around. I, I was expecting so much less from this show and the second season, there hasn't been a single episode that hasn't at the end of it had me scratching my head going, how on earth are they pulling this off in a episodic TV level production? And uh, this was no different. This was really, really well staged and the camera was very free and mm-hmm. the motion was very true. Like it, it just, you really felt like you were on that tank and I, I got to give him cred for that. Yeah. And uh, to brag even further on that, to take it to another, uh, you mentioned Game of Thrones, which is kind of the callback. We're all, we're comparing television shows yes. to Game of Thrones now, but we also like when we watched Game of Thrones, we knew that King's Landing was a set piece that they right. built and they added CG after the fact. And they actually went and filmed on this set piece that they built out in the middle of the UK. But with this one, right. like this is in a garage. Like this is what it goes back to the, the George Lucas comment of, um, that he made to Bryce Dallas Howard, basically like, Hey, we're going to be making these movies in the garage someday. And so to see that um, and to understand that they're doing that, it's comparable to this kind of similar sequence that occurs in the rise of Skywalker, where they where they went to Jordan and filmed the desert scene. And they're kind of running from the stormtroopers. Um, yeah. kind of a similar theme, similar, uh, camera angles or camera following in a lot of ways, but that too was, uh, most of it was on location there in Jordan. And this is, it, it is quite, quite remarkable that they did, that they were able to pull this off and us to feel like that they're actually driving some sort of vehicle through the jungle and maybe they were maybe this was the one time that they spent their budget money and flew out somewhere but i'm gonna go ahead and bet it was an led screen oh i'm i'm absolutely positive it was it's interesting i did um suffer through like all 17 hours of the disney investor call um mm-hmm. so that you wouldn't have to and um they did speak to the volume and the fact that they've upped their game that they basically piloted it for Mandalorian season one. And now they've taken all the technologies they've patented them. They've refined them. They've codified them into like a production flow that they can now mass produce. Like they can now spin this off for other productions. And they were talking about how they made a a bigger volume for this season so that they could have even more immersive set pieces and have more camera motion before you hit the floor, you hit the ceiling or you, you just hit the limits of what you can pack in that space. So they're doubling down on the volume as, as the go-to technology for these kinds of shows. And I think really it's because they proved with the Mandalorian season one, that the volume can let you do star Wars on TV, right? That they were able to greenlit all these other shows. Cause I don't think for a second that Disney would be rubber stamping productions. If they thought that they were all going to cost a billion dollars a season, which if they were doing this the way that they do traditional movies and having to rotoscope and, and green screen and, and composite and just do everything the, the traditional way, there's no way there's no way, but they're actually saving money on these visual effects, heavy sequences because the volume does so much of the heavy lifting for them in camera that they can actually bring these things in on a budget that is even more lucrative than say a game of Thrones level show, which they were content to put that level of money into now they don't even have to do that to get great results but if they do obviously they can go even further and that's why i think they said they've got three volumes up and running at this point they're they're doing some overseas they're this is really this is every studio is going to have one of these in their back lot uh for these kind of setups because they're just so efficient and they give you so much creative control in the moment to be able to 
just refine and perfect your shots uh, without having to worry about reviewing dailies and realizing that it was out of focus or it wasn't what you needed it to be. There's so much that you don't have to pick up when you use the volume. And and I think they've just really caught their stride with it, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then of course we get a lot of insight into uh, the Mandalorian's fighting style. He's now in stormtrooper attire. Sure. Um, <laughs> right. And whenever he gets out and he's fighting, uh, you know, the, the typical, it looks like they're fighting on top of a train type of sequence. I noticed that he tried blocking one of the, uh, <laughs> uh, one of, one of the attacks with his, with his uh, armor that's on his, uh, forearms and it just shatters and this is kind of a nice little tip of the hat to show like yeah of course this is he's always fought with Beskar in mind and why wouldn't he be able to change that in the last <laughs> second he wasn't thinking but then he catches on like oh yeah I can't do my same moves this way so he, he kind of has to move on and I just I really liked that that subtle hint that that's what we were getting here um, whether or not that was uh, Femi Uiwa that wrote that in or that that came down from above whoever Whoever told them to to draw attention to that was quite they were they were quite on the mark on that. Yeah, it was a fun gag because he's stunned for a minute when he realizes that he can't he can't glance a blow like that with his arm, whereas before he wouldn't have had to think twice um, when he has his best guard to back him up there. Yeah, fun little moment. And it, it kind of raises the stakes in a way because it puts him more on a level playing field and you feel like maybe one of these guys could you know get a thermal detonator off on him or something. And uh, uh, it just, yeah, it made for a more engaging sequence to see him out of his element like that one thing i wanted to mention about these pirates that they kind of allude to but i think it's worth spelling out is that they're calling them pirates because they don't know what else to call them but really we don't know that these are bad people these could just be people that have just had their ore stolen from them and they're just not going to take it anymore like this could be yeah a legitimate rebellion. These could be the good guys that Mando unfortunately has to, you know, blow up. Um, so it's just, it's interesting that Mando has to kind of be the bad guy in a way. And it's mm-hmm. nice when you don't have to think about it and you can just call them pirates. But yeah, after driving by like the little kid and all the little townspeople and remembering that this is Imperial occupied territory, you got to remember they're, they're not doing the Lord's work right now. There's a greater good mm-hmm. being accomplished, but they're potentially, you know, <laughs> There's a few kids whose daddies might not be coming home for yeah. dinner tonight because of Mando. And I don't know. I, I, there was a moment during the sequence when that kind of hit me that, oh, wait a minute. This this isn't good. I want these guys to kind of get away. Like I want them to be scared off, not, you know, thrown under the the treads of the tires. Um, but anyways, that's my hang up. Well, and then, of course, they're definitely not pirates because pirates are looters. They loot the booty from the ship. They're they not looting up, anything. Right? Yes. They're blowing it up. So this is obviously a message to the empire yeah. stopped mining from our land, but yeah, it's, right. it, it's exact. So it, it is definitely cringe worthy when you think of it <laughs> that way and you, you put it into perspective and I think Mando and Burr are processing it as well, but they also have to realize like, listen, we're in a situation where it's, it's us or it's them. Right. But the other cool thing that they do, and this is very, um, you know, classic shot where, it it looks like the heroes are going to to lose this battle. It looks like Mando's going to be defeated. And then in classic Star Wars trope, the Millennium Falcon comes out of nowhere and shoots down <laughs> yes. the enemy. But this time it's TIE Fighters that's right. saving the day in a very similar fashion. So that yeah. that didn't miss I didn't miss that one at all. Did you hear that they gave it kind of a triumphant cavalry sound cue? Like mm-hmm. they really are screwing with you a bit. It's weird to see a TIE fighter come in and save the day and have everything about what's on screen and what's coming out of the speakers say, Oh good. You know, the heroes are here to, to back up our heroes. And you're like, wait, no, that's the empire. Mm-hmm. So this, this really is an episode that works a lot better when you don't overthink it. Cause it's a great yeah. ride, but uh, it's, it's definitely challenging if you, if you start digging too deep on it for sure. Well, and then, of course, they get this um, heroic entrance into the garage that they saved the cargo and that these guys are they're being celebrated by the Empire. And so it also puts that into perspective that like temporarily Mando and uh, Mayfield definitely assisted the Empire here. And uh, unfortunately, Mayfield loses his temper here in a little bit. But we uh, we get this this whole sequence and Mando, he is still stuck on. I'm not taking off my helmet. <laughs> We're getting this done. But Burr uh, meets someone from his past and he recognizes one of the Imperial officers. And then this is when we get into the whole face scanner thing. But uh, right. Mayfield is unwilling to risk his neck that way, which maybe I'm thinking a little too much into this. 
But it's nice because eventually he does put his neck out for Mandalorian to expose himself because when Mando removes his helmet and does the scanner, you get a couple shots of Mayfield kind of looking like, oh, 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 my God, he did it. He took off the helmet. Holy cow. This is crazy. Right. But then, of course, they get caught. The The officer comes in and starts asking about his assignment, his TK number, and Mayfield comes in and, uh, you know, risks the whole operation to assist Mando to get the heck out of there. There's a couple of humor yeah. things here, a couple of other really cool trends but we get uh we get the reason for mandalorian taking off his helmet yeah so just before we get into that my one other niggle with this episode is that mayfield takes off his helmet early and Mm -hmm. he just basically refuses to put it back on and i'm you can't help but think of how many problems would have been solved in this episode if he just worn his hat and there was no real reason for him to not put it back on other than he just didn't want to. And so, I mean, you can come up with some sort of headcanon as to why he's repulsed by the idea of wearing the helmet. But when it comes right down to it, when your life's on the line, even Mando knows there's a time to put your convictions aside and do what makes sense. And he should have known, you know, the second I get out of this tank, I want to fade into the crowd. You know, we're on an undercover mission here. Why would I be the only stormtrooper not wearing a helmet when at any time an officer could come up to me and say, trooper, why is your helmet off? Just like they established in force awakens, right? Like Finn got in trouble for taking off his helmet. Mm -hmm. So this is a thing in star Wars that's already established. So for the fact that they just kind of set that aside so that Bill Burr could kind of be Bill Burr, it didn't really work for me. And because it caused so many problems, it again made me think, well, are these guys trying to, get the job done or are they just going to be, you know, stubborn and cause problems. And, and so that was a little tricky, but again, it leads to such a interesting payoff here when Mando goes to the scanner that a lot can be forgiven. I just, I can't help but feeling like they were playing really fast and loose with the, the, the character's motivations in this episode. Uh, one of my favorite parts about this episode was this Imperial captain who, you know, sits down with the boys who just succeeded in bringing in the cargo. He buy, he gets them some drinks and he begins talking. And usually we're used to Nazi like trends and Nazi like references that makes you feel kind of like Nazi Germany. But this right. guy, part of it is because of his accent. He sounds a little more like a, uh, Southern American Civil War type of captain who's sure. talking about, you know, these people think they want to be free, but once we win the day, they'll realize that oppression's the best place for them. I mean, so that was a trend that that I really like to see um, in this one because it switches it up a bit and it brings in mm. uh, a whole different type of theme of, you know, some of these Imperial officers got in their place because they are so gung-ho. And we saw this, of course, right. with the Bo-Katan episode where that Imperial officer is willing to um, you know, take the cyanide pill rather than comply with, with Bo-Katan. So that was um, something I really did enjoy. And then this is also a character-defining moment for uh, Miggs. Yeah, so at this point, because the Empire isn't the dominant force in the galaxy, the people that have stuck with it at this point are the dyed-in-the-wool believers. They are the zealots. They are the ones that believe in the cause. And so, yeah, we saw that with the ship captain in the Bo-Katan episode. We see it here. You're right that there was something a little Bayou about his accent, which is fun. It, it works. I still like my Imperial officers that British accents. I think it's kind of mm-hmm. a fun uniformity that the empire is kind of white and British and mm-hmm. male. You know, it just, it gives you a sense that there's a misogyny about it or, you know, like uh, there's a, a racism about it, which totally fits with the idea of Nazi Germany. And just the idea of a tyranny they're they're going to be oppressors and oppressors are going to feel that their type is superior. And so the people that would rise up would be similar. So I feel like we're losing that theme a little bit, but that's okay. I mean, that's, that was a very subtle thing that they alluded to in one star Wars movie 40 years ago. So I mean, that's not, that's not the be all end all. He was a fun character. I liked that. This was very Tarantino in a way, (laughs) creating this tension of these people being, mistaken as allies and so this person is very casual and very relaxed and creating an opening for these characters to be able to take them out the person doesn't the the bad guy doesn't realize he's in peril because he he thinks he's surrounded by people that uh, are on his side and and have this you know the the same kind of evil that he has and he hasn't quite clued in um that there's something duplicitous going on and having those dialogue heavy scenes around a table 
where it's all building to a moment where you know someone's going to die. Yeah. It, it feels like the it, it feels like the um the the scene in the first Godfather, uh, you know, where Michael goes to the meeting and you know, obviously, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, takes care of business around the the table there. Um, it it had a sense of that. It had a sense of inglorious bastards, you know, like where they're kind of in the midst of the Nazis and they're kind of mm-hmm. seeing the Nazis on their casual terms. Yeah, there there was a lot being said in the scene, and uh, it it this was one of the moments that made the episode for me because I feel like for all the contrivances that got us here, this said so much about Mayfield where. Mayfield, he knows he has a job to do. He knows his own neck is on the line because if he doesn't deliver, he's either going to die here in the Imperial base or he's going to die when Cara Dune gets a hold of him. But he can't help himself. There's something uh, so like just broken and painful inside him that he knows that this is kind of his last moment to get any kind of closure on the evils that he participated in and just try and right the mm-hmm. wrongs of his own soul. And you just, you see it on his face and he, he can't shut up. He could just toe the line and walk away, but no, he just can't do it. And I just, uh, there, there's so much being said here that I was eating that up. Yeah. And it, and they use something that was, I believe first referenced in aftermath um, in 2015, but then of course in the battlefront two video game, Cinder, which is this yeah. operation Cinder. And that's been communicated as kind of this very dark day for the galaxy. I mean, eventually it leads to, the uh the last stand of the empire but for uh mm-hmm. the a moment it's very tragic for so many people across the galaxy and then this is what causes mayfield to you know pull out his blaster in very like you said tarantino fashion and maybe i was stuck it was stuck right. in my head kind of uh southern uh plantation owner um mentality yeah, yeah. from whenever i was first introduced to this character but it felt so much like Django unchained where Leo DiCaprio is talking about, you know, how awesome all this stuff is and how, you know, he, he goes over this whole thing that pushes Christoph Waltz to be like, okay, I don't care if this is going to end in me dying. I got to take you out. Exactly. So yeah, if we're going to talk Tarantino, this is another great example of in the midst of a casual like dinner situation, but you know, I'm not in lockstep with these people, but I have to play the part, but I can't contain myself. Yeah. It, it, Mm -hmm. it is Tarantino that, and that's a great example. That's, that's a better example than Inglorious Bastards, even of, of this kind of, uh, dynamic. And it's so satisfying because it's so tense the whole time. You're just, you're waiting for it to explode. Absolutely. And then, of course, we get that, that payoff. They have to now, their hand is forced. They have to get out of there. There's no casually walking out. It's time now to, you know, blast their way out of this. And then this kind of leads to us seeing, um, of course, Finnick gets to show off her sharpshooter, um, prowess. Cara Dune right. gets to take part in a lot of this. But then we get the slave one that kind of draws the attention of the TIE fighters and brings back, of course, the detonator that we saw in uh, Attack of the Clones. And it's so nice because I feel like I am Finnick and Cara Dune in this scene because whenever they see this explosion and the TIE fighters get, um, you know, demolished by this little, this little detonating bomb, uh, they give a smirk to each other. And I feel like every single Star Wars fan that watched this episode uh, did the same exact thing when they saw the slave one get to use these little, um, I guess I'm using the wrong word, but detonators. Yeah. I think they're called like sonic blasts or, or sonic charges or mm-hmm. something like that. But yeah, I I'm sure we all remember in attack of the clones when the music drops out, you're in the, the meteors and it's, it's one of the few moments in star Wars where there's no music and they do it intentionally because they want this sonic bang to like resonate in your chest. And how much fun that they got to do that again. And when you're least expecting it, like we know it's slave one. So we know that technically, you know, he should be able to do this if he has any of those charges on board, but yeah, it just, it came out of nowhere and it, it had me grinning. Cause it, it did take me back to the first time I saw attack of the clones and how much fun that moment was. And it just makes you remember just sort of what a badass ship the slave one is and how much fun it is to see it up on screen. So yeah, another, another great moment. And it, what it does is it cuts short a tie fighter chase that we just don't need in this episode. It's just not one of those episodes. Mm-hmm. So let's just kind of kill it before it even begins. And that's kind of fun too. Sometimes it's that Indiana Jones moment of, I just don't have any patience for this bad guy. So I'm just going to shoot him and be done with it and walk away. I just, I liked it because it just was, it was badass on many, many levels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's, 
interesting to say that because they're definitely at this point in the episode, they're wrapping up the episode, kind of trying to put their nice little finish on it. So, of course, it makes sense. Like, why have a, a, a cinematic tie fighting battle right. when we could just do one thing that would satisfy fans the most? But even we have Mayfield sign off here where Cara Dune's just yep. like, oh, <laughs> it's a shame that, that Mayfield died in the explosion, um, kind of letting him walk. Which I was a little surprised by because I thought this was going to be, you know, a magnificent seven finale where they were all going to kind of go right. into Moff Gideon's ship, guns a blazing. But we may still get it. Maybe Mayfield, he um, realizes what Mando and Kara did for him and he wants to repay them by assisting them further. Uh, maybe he's someone who is, you know, the sacrificial hero of the finale. Who knows what we're getting? But at this point, it looks like Mayfield is walking free. Yeah, I, th- I think he's one and done on the season because you know, they left him on this planet. Uh, he can't fathom that they're actually going to be generous to him and, and let him walk, but he's got no money. He's got no ship. He's on a planet that probably isn't, you know, terribly happy to see any ex Imperials. So he's got his work cut out for him. So they, they did him a solid, but at the same time, you know, he's, he's got, he's got some things he's got to sort out, you know, before he kind of uh, catches, catches his stride and is going to be any good to anyone. So yeah, I, I think we're done with him. Uh, it was a fun misdirection because we kind of thought that maybe this was going to be a, a breakout episode and then the next episode he was going to prove his worth in the finale. But no, they got the whole like getting Mayfield out of the way in the first 30 seconds of this episode and we go on a totally different adventure, but they got what they needed. They have the coordinates from off Gideon. Mm-hmm. It sets up, you know, our little uh, cliffhanger teaser scene here at the end. And I think that's as much as we need from Bill Burr for the time being, but I'd be surprised if we didn't see him again next season. Yeah, and it's really interesting that um, going back to the message that the Mando sends Moff Gideon, he is um, announcing to the entire galaxy and to Moff Gideon himself that <laughs> I know where you are. Like, I have a way of tracking you, which, like, I mean, if you're trying to to find <laughs> precious cargo, it, this almost seems like something you shouldn't do. You shouldn't probably tell the person you're tracking, like, hey, we have a way to track you, because what's keeping Moff Gideon from, you know, taking a detour and finding a, a system nearby and getting in a new ship um and then also because the facial acting that uh that john carlos Pizzito portrays here is one of kind of discomfort like he doesn't seem too comfortable that the mandalorian knows where he is so um maybe uh, i'm misreading that maybe he's confident and just like okay come and try to take him and see what happens but it looks like right now moff gideon is not too happy that this transmission has been sent to him right now this is the third seeming like logic flaw in the episode it made for a kick butt scene right like to be able to repurpose that dialogue and kind of stick it to gideon and and make you think that mando's finally kind of gotten under his skin and we're seeing the chinks in gideon's armor you know that he can be ruffled a little bit when he finds out that he hasn't outsmarted our hero that he you know he thinks he's absconded and he's free and clear and he's already won and then he finds out no you know it's not going to be that easy that's a, a great scene and i love it for its cinematic qualities but again I'm scratching my head going, wait a minute. Why would they want to blow the reveal? You know, why do they want to mm-hmm. indicate to him that they have his coordinates? If they can be sending him subspace transmissions, then they can talk to his ship. They know where he is. Now he knows that they know where he is. And now he knows that they know that he knows. And you've just, you've, you've, you've blown that element of surprise. And so I, I was really thinking that either they're doing it because they want to rile him up so that like a mad dog, he stops playing chess and starts swinging. Cause sometimes you want to do that. You want to get your opponent off kilter. So either this is strategic and it's going to pay off next episode, or it was another in a long line of convenient setups to create what's a, a, a cool, fun moment in the show, but doesn't hold up upon scrutiny. Yeah. Well, I would love if the next episode opens up with Boba Fett chewing out our Mandalorian because yeah. it seems like Boba Fett was very intimidated by Gideon's ship when he discovered it. Like, right. I mean, the, he was not very thrilled to see that the Empire was back and that this was the type of ship that he was tailing. So hopefully that would that would kind of be like a nice little acknowledgement that like, hey, we took we took some leniency with the plot in this last episode. Mm-hmm. So now we're going to start with kind of riding it by having Boba Fett yelling at the Mandalorian like I'm in the slave one. It's a great ship and all, but it's not it's it's nothing compared to this thing. Right. Yeah. Who who knows where they're going with it? I think that this was just convenience and it's never going to be mentioned again. But it did make for a fun scene. I do love what Giancarlo Esposito can do with his face. You know, you you see him just kind of glance off to the side, like he's trying to process the situation and work all the numbers. And he just, he, he's able to convey 
intelligence, slightly flustered, but trying to hold it in. And so much is just under the surface of his face. I don't know. He's just, mm-hmm. he's a, it's, he's a compelling actor. Uh, and I can't wait to hopefully see him die next week. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and it's something that to speak on that performance, like he always, every time we've seen him in the past, he's always kind of had this, you know, the, this sneaky little smirk. His face has always been more, uh, right, tense right. and like, a um, in, in a very kind of evil way. And this, we see it real time. Like it's slowly, his muscles just kind of relax yes. and he begins, his face begins to, to droop, which gives me the sense of like, he's not too happy with what, uh, what he's seeing right now. I think ultimately this message was to remind viewers that next week is the season finale. Um, that, that yes. this is going to be the, the final, uh, the final stand between the two of them. Now, with all the plot conveniences that happened in this episode, I am super excited for what is set up now, <laughs> um, what we're going to get in this next chapter of the Mandalorian. I am, I, I'm ready for it. Like next week cannot come fast enough. Absolutely. Yeah. He messed with baby. He needs to die. But before we sign off, I feel like because I was all over the place and meandering and complaining about all this plot stuff, we totally glossed over that critical moment where Mando is at the scanner and he's running out of time and he has to make the decision is the creed, the most important thing to me, or is the baby the most important thing to me? So how did you read that scene? Like what did, what did you feel it was telling us about where the Mando's at? Well, he says it to Gideon himself that we, that I think was communicated here where he's coming to terms with it, where he tells Gideon, you have no idea how much that child means to me. He didn't mention his code. He didn't mention his commitment to the Mandalorian Creed. He mentioned his specific relationship with the child, that the child means this much to me, and that's going to be your undoing. Because I think up until this point, uh, Moff Gideon figured that this was the creed that was kind of controlling Mando, that he he was a man of code. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think that that's exactly right, and thank you for pointing that out, because... I I think that when Mando removes his helmet, that's his decision. And the armor kind of alludes to this at the in the finale of season one, where she basically says, you know, when she gives him the symbol of the mudhorn, you are now a, a creed of two. You are a clan of two. And um and ultimately I think individual clans, at least what we've seen from Mandalorian uh tradition, and even though we're dealing with a new type of tradition, we've seen from Bo Katan herself throughout the Clone Wars that her circle is more important than the greater circle and that she is willing to, to protect that inner circle with as much uh, that she can give. So I think that we're getting the same type of thing. Maybe we won't see the child ever parting ways with the Mandalorian. This may be something where uh, Mando is, is accepting this new um, creed of, you know what? Some traditions of the Mandalorians great and uh, some are not so great. And this is my own path that I'm creating. Uh, so yeah, that's how I kind of read into that, that the child is the most important. Yeah. And I think that's the ultimate realization. I don't know if he's truly processed what the implications are as far as him being part of the way the creed, but it's obvious, you know, he's, he's standing there and in a moment of truth, he had to figure out or just his heart told him, am I more devoted to the way or the baby? Cause there's no way to have it both ways at this moment. I'm either going to fulfill my obligation to the baby or I'm going to fulfill my obligation to the creed. I can't have both. And that's when he stopped being the child's guardian. And I think truly started being the child's father. And I, I, I think that that's when he realized it. Cause he, he's had all these dialogue scenes in the last few episodes where it seems like he's trying to convince himself, stay of the course. This is just a, a job that you have to do out of honor. And I got to keep my head in the game. And I think this is the moment where he's like, no, I can't pretend that this is simply my commission. This little guy's my life at this point. And when your kids are involved, you don't have the, the luxury of principles anymore. It's just, mm-hmm. they always trump everything. And the fact that baby trumped the creed, I think is just, just a beautiful thing to be able to say without words. This would be so unsatisfying if he sat down and explained to someone where he was at. But the fact that all the these plot contrivances led to a moment where they were able to make that crystal clear for the audience without a word, mm-hmm. that's a lot of fun. That was a great moment. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we are going to see 
all of this come back around, I think the Mandalorian is going to have to answer to the armor one way or the other about what uh, what has occurred in this journey. But will we get that next week? We will have to wait and see. But while people are on the edge of their seat, John, where can they find you? Well, I'd love them to check out my other podcast, SNL After Party. We can be found on YouTube or wherever better podcasts can be found. We cover all new SNL. We're covering the Timothy Chalamet episode that's going to be airing this Saturday. And uh, yeah, we do a sketch by sketch review. We have a lot of fun. It's a good show. By all means, check it out. SNL After Party. And you can keep up with this show throughout the week on Twitter at Star Wars TV Talk and by emailing us at hello at Star Wars TV Talk.com. You can find the rest of our episodes online at Star Wars TV Talk.com and by searching for Star Wars TV Talk wherever you get your podcasts. And please do not forget to subscribe. You can find the TV Talk Network at TV Talk.fm. Thank you so much for listening and may the force be with you always. <laughs>